All right, we'll say again a Merry Christmas to you all. It's not too often that Christmas falls on a Sunday morning, but as we were saying last night, I think it's better. There are so many cultural and traditional trappings around Christmas, but it's a blessing to have Christmas on a Sunday as it really just forces us to think on Christ, remember Christ, the reason for this season. That's what this day and season are all about. We're remembering the gift of God's Son to the world. And the purpose of that gift was to, as Chris was saying, reconcile us to God, to pay the penalty for our sins, which Jesus did on the cross. And we receive that real Christmas gift by faith. As the most famous verse in the Bible goes, John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish have everlasting life. Faith is a pretty big deal in the Bible. It is by faith that we gain approval from God, Hebrews 11.2 says. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6 says. In fact, that entire chapter of the Bible, Hebrews 11, is devoted to giving example after example of believers who had great faith, also that you might be spurred on in your own race of faith. You have names like Noah, and Abraham, Moses in that faith hall of fame. But that list is limited to Old Testament believers. If it were to be updated with some New Testament believers, I'm sure we would see names like Peter, James, John, Paul. I also made the case a couple weeks ago from Matthew chapter 8 that this unnamed Roman centurion would make the list. We're normally preaching through Matthew's gospel here on Sunday mornings, and we encountered this Gentile centurion who had more faith in Jesus than any Jew at the time. So much so that he had such a deep and complete trust in Christ's power and authority that when Jesus saw him, he marveled at him. And Jesus said of him in Matthew eight ten, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. When Jesus was often scolding his own disciples for having little faith, but here he finds one, this, this Gentile, with great faith. What makes for great faith? We argue that the difference between little faith and great faith seems to come down to the difficulty of truths or promises believed. And I mean like really believed. It was one thing to believe Jesus was a teacher or a healer. It was another to believe that he was the divine Messiah who possessed total power and authority over all things. I mean, the Jews had basked in the light of the Old Testament, God's revelation. Yet when Jesus, the light of the world, came, most did not believe in him. Meanwhile, the Gentiles lived in darkness, but when they caught just the tiniest ray of light from Christ, many immediately believed. That was like this Gentile centurion, which makes him a model of great faith. But all that being said, there's another figure in the New Testament who I think would rank pretty near the top of this list. I mean, you combine Old Testament and New Testament lists of these models of faith. I think we at least have a podium finish for this person in the Faith Hall of Fame. If we're going by this definition of great faith, namely just taking God at his word and believing entirely, even the most difficult truths and promises, this person would probably take the cake. I'm talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's likely you don't immediately think of Mary as being an example of great faith. You think of Mary as being the mother of the Lord. You think of Mary as being blessed. That's how the angel approached her. He said, greetings, favored one. She's a woman who found God's special favor. And Catholics go too far by worshiping Mary. They call it venerating, but it's the same thing. They pray to her, sing to her, bow down to her. Scripture never supports any of that. But let us Protestants not despise or ignore Mary. Rather, in the spirit of the Faith Hall of Fame, we should consider her example and imitate her faith. Because it is shockingly profound. Again, Hebrews eleven six tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. With that in mind, Mary was exceedingly pleasing to God. And that should be our desire. Is that your desire as a believer to be pleasing to your maker, your savior? Second Corinthians 5, 9 says it is our ambition to be pleasing to him. That, that should be our life's ambition. 
to please our God. But nothing pleases him like faith. Just when his people trust him, just take him completely at his word. That's when he is honored. If you're here this morning as a Christian and you have faith, but we should aspire to great faith. And there are a few better models of that than Mary. So this morning, as we remember the great gift of Christ, <clears throat> I want you to be spurred on to your own great faith as we consider the great example of Mary. You might be shocked by it, but I hope more so you'll be challenged by it. This example of great faith comes from Luke chapter 1, so you can take your Bibles now, open them there. If you want to follow along, Luke chapter 1. If you're visiting, go ahead and grab a pew Bible. You'll find it on page 43 of the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. Now, as you turn, I want to tell you in advance why Mary is such a model of faith. Hebrews 11.1 tells us faith is the conviction, the assurance of things not seen. It is trusting in the word and promises of God entirely. And that describes Mary. She believed the unbelievable, and she did so right away. She immediately took God at his word without a shred of doubt. This is something I want you to see for yourself. But what really makes Mary's response stand out is seeing it in contrast to other responses in the Bible. In other words, when you look at how other people respond to God's word or his promises, Mary's faith response really shines because most people don't respond like this. Even when you're talking about godly men and women, when God reveals his word to them, it could be through a dream, a prophet, a vision, an angel. Their immediate response is not often just acceptance and belief. It is rather more often doubt or resistance or they demand a sign. Before they take God at his word, they're going to need to see some proof. I think the most notable example of this in the Old Testament would be Gideon. God was going to use Gideon in the time of the judges to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And God had already visited him via the angel of the Lord, given him a sign and, and gave him many promises. He told him through the angel, I will be with you. The Lord is with you. You shall defeat Midian. This all comes from Judges chapter 6. But then the time of battle came. The Midianites assembled. It was time to actually go to battle. And Gideon put God to the test. He wasn't willing because he wasn't sure if God was really going to be with him. So he put a wool fleece on the ground overnight and he asked God, he said, if there's dew on the fleece only, but it's dry on the ground, then he would know that surely God is with him. And God was very long suffering with Gideon and obliged this request. It happened. But it still wasn't enough. The next day, Gideon asked God to reverse the sign. If it is that the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, then he would know God would be with him. And God graciously accommodated one more time. Finally being assured, Gideon led Israel into battle and did deliver them. Gideon, in the end, was faithful to his mission. But he is not an example to follow, not when it comes to faith. His was what scripture would call a little faith. God's word wasn't enough for him. He he needed a see to believe. And God was very gracious and obliged, but it would be far better just to take God at his word in the first place. That is how he is pleased and honored. That Old Testament example is matched in the New Testament by Thomas, who is now just forever known as Doubting Thomas. And after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples that they might know he physically rose from the dead. But on that first appearance, Thomas wasn't with them. Now, of course, after the fact, all the other disciples told Thomas, like, hey, we just saw the risen Lord. It's true. He really rose from the dead. But Thomas wasn't buying it. His response was, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. He says in John 20, unless I see the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, I will not believe. Now, some days later, Jesus appeared again. This time, Thomas was with them. And the Lord was, again, very gracious, very patient 
with his doubting disciple. And he said to him, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And this, of course, elicited the great response of Thomas, where he says in confession, my Lord and my God, John 20, 28. Thomas did become believing that day, but again, it would have been far better for him to believe without seeing, which Jesus says next, John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And there are many other examples like this, but I I trust you get the point. Faith is assurance of things unseen. It is the complete acceptance of God's word. Those with uh, a little faith need signs. They need to see to believe. But those with great faith do not. They rest in God's word. They have a deep-seated trust in their creator. And Mary had that trust. She was told something more unbelievable than all these people. But she demanded no sign. By contrast, her great faith really stands out. Now, there's one more contrast, though, you need to see. This is a major contrast that Luke himself brings out in his account of the birth narrative of Christ. Luke, in chapter 1, he actually records the birth accounts of two notable sons that came in this time. Jesus and John the Baptist. But he intentionally shows the difference in the response of their parents, Mary and Zacharias. Both interacted with the same angel. Both were given unbelievable messages. Both were promised wonderful things about what God would do through their sons. Yet Mary is the one who responds with full faith and acceptance. Zacharias does not. This is a contrast you need to see for yourself before we look at Mary's faith response. So let's do that. Let's just watch this contrast unfold in Luke 1. Starts in verse 5 with the introduction of Zacharias, who was a priest. His wife was Elizabeth. It says they were both righteous and blameless, but they were also both old and childless. We're not going to read every verse here, but verse 7 kind of sums it up. It says, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. It probably evokes the memory in your mind of Abraham and Sarah, who were also childless and well beyond childbearing years. But as with Abraham and Sarah, by God's power, that can change. It's going to change. Now, he was a priest. The Jews had many priests. They served on a rotation. They would go to the temple for a few weeks out of the year, like for their shift to serve around the temple. This was Zacharias' week. On top of that, verse 9 says he was chosen for the great privilege of actually entering the temple to uh, offer the incense offering. This this really was like a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This would have been the height of his priestly service. He finally gets to go in the temple and offer the incense offering. But entering the temple that day would not be the most memorable thing that happened to him. Jump down to verse 11 when he goes inside. It says this. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. This Probably was Zacharias's first time in the temple. But either way, he surely did not think this was normal. Okay, you go in the temple, you see an angel. An angel appears out of nowhere, right next to the altar of incense. And Zacharias responds like most people do in the Bible when they see an angel. He's scared to death. This explains the angel's response. Verse 13. It says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Now, just think about this. On the day that Zacharias gets chosen to offer the incense offering, he sneaks in a little personal prayer to have a child. 
He's still holding out some hope. He was praying for a child. The angel says, your petition has been heard. So God heard that prayer request and dispatched this angel to go answer it. Give him a response. And God's response is that they will indeed have a child. And a very special one at that. This child will not be the Messiah. But he will be the forerunner to the Messiah. Verse 14 continues the angel's message. He says, you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There's a lot in this message, but overall, I mean, it's just a stunning announcement. There's Zacharias. He's a priest. He's privileged already to serve near the temple. One day, he finally gets to go inside. There he, he prays for a child after having suffered the heartbreak of infertility for his whole lifetime. And then God immediately answers him, sends him an angel to give him a response in person. And that angel promises Zacharias will have a son, a very special one, the forerunner to the long-awaited Messiah. And just this whole thing, this whole appearance, this promise is amazing. If that were you, this happened to you, how would you respond? And what would you say? I imagine you would be shocked, but hopefully thankful, rejoiceful, or rejoicing rather. You would praise, you would worship, you'd thank God. How do you think Zacharias responded? He doubted. Verse 18, right after Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And do you see the doubt mixed into his response? He's already received a sign from God. Namely, he's staring at an angel who just answered what he was praying for. No one else could have known that. He's, he's coming with a direct answer to his petition. Now, maybe Zacharias doesn't want to get his hopes up again, having suffered so much disappointment over the years. And they were indeed past childbearing years. What the angel promised seemed unbelievable. But this is coming from a messenger angel sent by God. And it's not like this promise was unprecedented. I mean, remember Sarah and Abraham? This, this has happened before. I mean, shouldn't this righteous priest, who knew the word of God, have had more faith than this? Yes. Therefore, verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I love the angel's response here. He pretty much says like, do you not know who I am? Like, I'm Gabriel. I'm one of the top angels. I stand in God's presence. And you're not going to take my word for it. Zacharias had every reason to believe. What more of a sign did he need than, than the angel's presence? But because of his doubt, he would get a sign the hard way. Verse 20 he continues, the angel says, and behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. You see now how Zacharias's doubt and little faith are made explicit. And the angel, he's just a messenger. This message was coming from God. These were God's words. Zacharias did not believe them. Thankfully, God's promise was unconditional. It did not depend on Zacharias's acceptance. It was going to happen. Still, God was going to show him just how true his promises are by making Zacharias mute until his word was fulfilled. And that is precisely what happened. Zacharias and his wife returned to the hill country of Judea after his week of priestly service. But now he was mute. He couldn't speak. 
God made good on his promise of discipline, just like he made good on his promise of blessing. Elizabeth did conceive despite her old age, and they did bear a son later. Like the angel said, they had joy and gladness. All right, so that's, that's the backstory of the conception of John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1. And we see the, the, the highlight, the focus is on the response of Zacharias to the angel's message. Now, the text of Luke chapter 1 after that immediately moves into the backstory of the conception of Jesus. Back to back. And this is where we see that contrast really shine. So let's now, with all this in mind, let's shift now our focus to Mary and the account of the conception of Jesus. We're fast forwarding six months where the same angel shows up, this time to a young virgin girl living in Nazareth named Mary. And so we continue verse 28. Fast forwarding a bit, verse 28. Angels visiting her, it says, And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Now, already this appearance seems different. And when the angel appeared to Zacharias, he he appeared out of thin air, just showed up. Here, though, this, this verb for coming in, verse 28, it indicates this angel just walked into her house, just kind of went through the front door. He walked in. Zacharias was floored by the angel's appearance. Mary appears less startled by his appearance, more caught off guard by his greeting. The angel says, greeting, favored one, the Lord is with you. I think she's taken aback by this because she did not believe herself to be favored by the Lord. She's probably thinking like, do you got the right house? Do you know who I am? Like, I don't have the Lord's favor. We can say this because we know Mary was poor and destitute. We know this because later when Jesus was born and they go to dedicate him at the temple, they offer the cheapest offering allowed of a turtle dove, which was reserved for the poorest of the poor. Also, she lived in Nazareth, which back then was equivalent to like a backwoods podunk town. As it was said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Mary has not lived a privileged life. She knows nothing of this favor of which the angel speaks, but she's going to. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. The angel gave Zacharias an extremely detailed rundown of how great his son, John, would be in God's eyes. And now the angel gives Mary a similar rundown about her son, only is greater. Is greater than great. Just consider the claims about this son. He says, this child will be great. He'll be son of the most high, meaning son of God. God will give him the throne of his father, David, son of David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Though it's not our purpose to study this part of the text right now for, for those who know the Old Testament. You know, all these promises evoke the promises of the Davidic covenant, promises of the coming Messiah. That's who the angel is talking about. This is who every Jew is waiting for, even if they didn't fully grasp the significance of the Messiah. But they longed for a deliverer, a king of kings, who would come and save them. And the angel is telling Mary, that's your son. Your son is going to be that long-awaited son of God, son of David, this Messiah. That's who you're going to have. That's a shocking promise. I mean, who could ever be prepared For such an announcement, just do your best to really put yourself in her shoes, in her life. Just imagine that announcement. What's interesting though is Mary seems to be okay with all that. Her only hang up is over the part where the angel insinuated that she would conceive this child like right now. But how can that be? She explains verse 34. 
Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I am a virgin. Now, consider this this question carefully. Notice how this is different from Zacharias' response. His was clearly laced with doubt. He needed to see a sign. He wanted a sign before he could accept the message. Mary is simply being inquisitive. Zacharias was questioning the veracity, the truthfulness of the angel's message. Mary is merely questioning the mechanism. It's a fair question because she was a virgin after all. If if Zacharias was merely questioning how because he's an old man, that would have been fine. How could she have a son? You recall Zacharias received a rebuke for his doubt. Mary receives no rebuke because while she wonders, she's not doubting. And so the angel answers her question. You know the rest here, verse 35. You know how it goes. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And here we see that the promise, the cherished promise of a virgin birth, or more accurately, a virgin conception. This child will be so special that he won't even have a human father. Rather, God himself will be the father. He will be conceived directly, directly and miraculously by the Holy Spirit. This is the mystery of the incarnation where God the Son took on a human nature, uh, came to this world, entered our world. And therefore, he would not only be called the son of David, but also the son of God. Humanly, this is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. Elizabeth just got pregnant. God knows no limits. Now, I know we're rushing over many rich truths here, but our goal this whole time has been to get to the faith response of Mary. And now here we finally get it. After that, that staggering announcement that she is going to be the mother to not just the Messiah, the divine Messiah, the long-awaited one who will redeem this world, all the way through a virgin birth. With that in mind, so now how does she respond? Now she's got the whole message. How does she respond? It all comes down to verse 38. Here's her response. Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I hope now after after seeing all the context, you can better appreciate how truly amazing her response is. There's no doubt here, only faith. There's no rejection, only acceptance. There's no refusal, only service. She asked for no sign. But she just submits herself immediately to the revealed word of God. Mary confesses that she is merely a slave of the Lord. It's literally what she says. She's the Lord's slave. She views her own will, her own desires, her own plans as all secondary to God's will, God's desires, God's plans. I'm telling you, this is one of, if not the greatest faith responses in in all of scripture. And and once again, it stands out all the more because you see it in contrast to Zacharias' response. And the way Luke arranges his material, includes these details, indicates he's bringing out this contrast on purpose. Think about how different these two people were. Zacharias was a priest. Mary was a simple peasant girl. Zacharias served in Jerusalem, the holy city. Mary lived in a backwoods town, Nazareth. Zacharias had the rare privilege of entering the temple. Mary would never set foot in the temple. It's not even allowed being a woman. Furthermore, Zacharias, he received a clearly supernatural experience. This angel visits him out of thin air and has information of what he just prayed about. Mary, on the other hand, it seems to receive a, a more ordinary experience. An angel just walks into her house. She wasn't praying for this. She wasn't expecting this. And really on the flip side, and think about it. The promise 
given to Mary of a virgin birth, uh, birth was more difficult to believe. I mean, that, that's unprecedented. Nothing like that has ever happened before. Humanly, it is 100% impossible. But really, the, the promise to Zacharias of a child in old age, while still difficult, I mean, it's within the realm of possibility. It, it can happen. It's happened before. Abraham, Sarah, there's a precedent. You put all these details together, and really, it should be Mary who was the one who's doubting, asking God for a sign, like, show me this is true. Everything suggests that Zacharias, this priest, this man of God, he should be the one responding in faith, trust, and obedience. But he doubts, he wavers, he asks for a sign. Meanwhile, Mary just has a humble faith. Just submits, just as you will, as your word says. She submits to the word of the Lord. With a servant's heart, she's ready to accept the Lord's will and just be a part of the Lord's plan. Oh, and also keep in mind, Mary had more to lose. Zacharias, in his promise, he had nothing to lose. He had only gain in his promise. He gained his son. Mary had loss. For her to have a child outside of marriage came with a cost. First off, nobody's going to believe her story of a virgin birth. She can't like tell people. No, no one's going to believe this. She'd be shunned. What about Joseph, her betrothed husband, husband-to-be? He was going to get rid of her. That's for sure. And even worse, getting pregnant outside of marriage in that day, many might assume she committed adultery, and that came with the death penalty. We don't know if she realized any of this right away, but, but either way, it didn't matter. In this moment and afterward, she fully embraced God's will. And she's trusted God to take care of her while fulfilling his good promises. This is why we can rightly see Mary as a woman of great faith. And as a side note, can I point out, we don't really know her age, but just the, given the culture, the low life expectancy, many women were being betrothed, marrying, having children in their teens, their late teens. Anyone in youth group can have profound faith. You don't have to be old to have great faith. A child can have great faith. In all of scripture, she may rank as one of the greatest examples of faith just because of the nature, the difficulty of the promises given to her. Remember how we related great faith to the difficulty of promises believed. Can you take God at his word, even though what he says seems impossible, seems contrary to what you see in your life? That is great faith. Abraham was promised many descendants. It's difficult, but okay, doable. We can see that. It's within the realm of possibility. Moses was promised to lead his people out of Egypt. Yeah, that's going to be very hard up against Pharaoh, but I can picture how it could happen. David was promised to be king, even though he was a young boy. You could see that coming about. But just Mary was promised the absolute impossible. She didn't even flinch. She believed, she accepted it. Her faith was great. And if you want confirmation that we're not just making this up, look a little further in the text. Right after this, Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. Now think about it. It's the only person in the world who's going to believe her story. And Elizabeth pronounces a blessing upon Mary. She says in verse 42, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then one more blessing. Look at verse 45, she says at the end, of Mary, she says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. You know, part of me wonders if this was also a little dig at Zacharias. Because you realize when Elizabeth says this, her husband Zacharias is still mute precisely because... <laughs> He did not believe there would be fulfillment of what the angel had spoken. But you can see how Elizabeth recognizes the great faith of Mary. And we too should recognize the great faith of Mary. And what's left for us to do now is then just reflect on the great faith of Mary that we might be challenged to grow in our own faith. You know, what is this great faith? Again, it is taking God at his word. That he said it, he wrote it, that's enough. It's where you believe and, and cling to his promises, no matter what, no matter how unbelievable they might seem. 
No matter how difficult your life circumstances, you deeply trust him and then you live accordingly. You live like everything he says is true. Not just this intellectual assent, but you actually, your life changes based on what he has said. That is how we honor and glorify and please the God who made us and saved us. So we can ask now, like, what are some of the unbelievable things God has told us in his word? You may think of like creation or the flood or parting the Red Sea. Let's just go straight to the gospel itself. The gospel message itself, which is just as unbelievable. In a nutshell, it's this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. And Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now he was buried. Now he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We're told in God's word that this child who was born of a virgin, he came into the world to die for our sins. He grew up. He lived a perfect life. Yet he went to the cross dying willingly as a substitute sacrifice for our sins. And having completed his atoning work, he was buried. But then he rose from the dead on the third day. He did all this to reconcile us to God. Do you believe this? Can you believe all this? You know, what's not so unbelievable in scripture is the fact that all people need this reconciliation. That all are sinners. Granted, many people live in denial of this, but just look around, look in the mirror. Who is without sin? Who among us is perfectly righteous in thought, in deed, in attitude, in action? None of us. We know, you should know, as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not hard to believe. And there's nothing we can do about this sin problem because it has produced in us a state of spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1 says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're lost, we're condemned, we're under God's just wrath. You may not want to accept these truths, but... I hope your conscience betrays you and convicts you. It's true. The bad news of the gospel is not unbelievable because we all know all the wrong we've done in life. But with that in mind, what's truly unbelievable is nevertheless, God's love toward sinners, towards rebels, enemies, us. Though undeserving, he was moved to mercy so much so that he sent his son to die in their place. To redeem them. Like Romans 5.8 says. That God demonstrates. His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. I mean you, you tell me. What kind of God is like this? There's no God that's like this. He's a God of justice. but He's also a God of love. Both of which meet and reconcile on the cross. In the loving sacrifice of his son. For our sins. That is unbelievable. That this Jesus, he really came, he really lived, he really died, he really rose again, he really ascended. He gives eternal life to all who believe. Who can actually believe this? Who can, who can actually believe this? The message of the gospel is unbelievable to the world. And worse than unbelievable, it's, it's outright foolish. So what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, the word of the cross, it's just foolishness. To those who are perishing. Doesn't make sense. They don't have eyes to see it. They want nothing to do with it. Not interested. For them to give their lives and follow this savior. I mean they're going to need to see more. They need some proof. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.22. He says indeed Jews ask for signs. And Greeks search for wisdom. The Jews in that day. They were like Zacharias. They needed some proof. Like show me a sign. The Greeks, meanwhile, they, they wanted to be dazzled with intellect and wowed with philosophy. But that's not where the power of God is. Instead, Paul says, verse 23, 1 Corinthians 1. No, we, we just preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This may be a completely unbelievable message, but to those 
who are given eyes to see it and believe it. They find it delivers on what it promises. New life, new birth, new desires, new direction, new destination. Not everyone believes. Like Paul says in Romans 10, 16, as he quotes Isaiah 53, he says, Lord, who has believed our report? Who has believed our report? Many don't. We know God must do a sovereign work to open blind eyes, but he does so through this gospel preached, through the power of his word and his promises. And so as Paul says next in Romans ten seventeen, faith. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so with this in mind, I would appeal to you today, if you've not done so, to turn from your sins and look upon this Savior and just believe the unbelievable. Who can believe this? But believe the unbelievable based on his word. He's already given you a sign. You're holding it. It's his word. Receive the good news he offers. You will find this new and eternal life he spoke about. Like we read earlier in John three sixteen, this God so loved the world that he gave. He's the one giving his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life and for those of you here who have already believed the unbelievable i would appeal to you to to grow in your faith that it becomes great let me tell you this strange phenomena that occurs among many christians they they will believe all the unbelievable truth claims in the gospel in the bible is jesus the divine messiah is he God incarnate, virgin born? Did he die on the cross, rise from the dead, and ascend into heaven? They will say yes, that they believe all that. They'll sign on the dotted line. They actually believe all that truth. Amen. But then they find it hard to believe some other things, the Bible says. And more practically, they have a hard time believing some of the good promises God has given to us for, for daily life and faith. Like what? How about Matthew 6, where Jesus gives us this this crazy promise that God, your heavenly father, will care for you. He'll care for all of your needs, not necessarily your wants, but he will give you what you need for your life as you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And we're pushing it here. I mean, can you believe such a thing? But to think that God would actually care for you. And because of that, Jesus says, therefore, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about tomorrow. Such worrying, Jesus says, comes from little faith. Because you're not believing what he just promised. That God will care for you. Can you believe that? It's pretty unbelievable. Can you believe in faith God will care for you? How about forgiveness? Maybe as a believer, you have greatly sinned. You've stumbled in a massive way. Or maybe you've repeatedly stumbled. And you start to wonder, like, could could God forgive me? Could he accept me? Could he love me? But what does he promise as we repent? 1 John 1, 9. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How many times will he do this? Every time. This does not mean we should diminish the seriousness of sin, but it does mean we should magnify the grace of God. So look, can you... We're not talking about being flippant with sin, but can you repent of that sin, that same sin for the hundredth time, and then really believe that because of what Christ has already done, you are forgiven, you are accepted, you're still justified, that God does love you. When you're in sin, that sounds pretty unbelievable, but it's what God's word says. It's promised. And then how about avoiding sin in the first place? God promises we can overcome temptation, that we're not powerless against the flesh. He always provides a way of escape. That's the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Maybe you're wrestling with sin You're losing, and you think there's nothing you can do. You're powerless to change. There's nothing you can do to overcome this sin, this struggle, this temptation. 
That sounds like a response of little faith. Because that's not what his word says. God promises to be with you, to provide a way of escape, to guide you. Or one more, how about enduring suffering? This is a big one because we live in a fallen world. We've been granted salvation, yes, but we still sin. We still get sick. We still die. We still have hope, though, because we know we will rise again and be with the Lord in glory. But as you suffer in this life, it could be persecution, affliction, sickness. You might start to doubt. You might start to doubt God's character. Like, is he really good? How could he let this happen? Is he wise? Is he even in control? Does he have any power? Maybe you doubt his plan. Like, does he know what he's doing? Because my will seems a lot better than his will. If I were in control, this would be much better. That type of doubt, though, can lead to just a tailspin of fear, anxiety, and worry. But that, too, sounds like a response of little faith. Because that's not what God has promised. As we read last night, Christmas Eve, Romans eight twenty-eight, that we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his promise. Look no further than the cross itself where, Jesus, where God took the greatest evil ever, the death of the only sinless person, the, the Son of God, and turned it into the greatest good ever. But this is a pretty unbelievable promise that he will somehow work all things for good in the end. That's hard to believe. You know when that's really hard to believe is when you get cancer or when your loved one dies or when you, you get fired from your job because of your faith. But no matter how much you suffer, great faith, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just going to keep clinging to God's promises. Despite the appearance of out of control circumstances, great faith just continues to believe the unseen and endures. There are many more good promises given to us. Everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us in God's word. And we need them all. We need every truth, every promise that we might hold on to them be filled with hope, and then just finish our own race of faith. And that is the real power produced by great faith. It leads to endurance, which is what you need. We began by talking about the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Now, I don't think I have to prove it to you anymore. We could safely add Mary's name to that list. She would get a spot in the New Testament Faith Hall of Fame. But, you know, why did that author write that chapter to begin with, telling us about all these examples of great men and women of faith. He wrote that because his Hebrew audience was suffering. They were being persecuted and made to suffer for their faith. They were accepting the, the seizure of their property. They were losing homes because of their faith in Christ. But they have need of endurance. So he writes to tell them this, to spur them on it, to don't give up. He tells them, for example, right before Hebrews 11, we got Hebrews 10, 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He's reminding them. Also listen to this, verse 35. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He's telling them, and it applies just as much to us, this is not a time for shrinking back. Christ is coming. That is another unbelievable promise we have, that this Savior will come a second time to usher in everlasting righteousness, to do away with sin and death forever. He's going to complete the victory he won on the cross. He'll bring us with him. Christ is soon coming. That unbelievable promise is our hope. And so we look and we run to the reward. But that's a reward we're only going to see if we endure and we're only going to endure if we have great faith. Look, God knows it's good for us to be tested and purified and encouraged by these many witnesses, Mary and others. 
This, this faith hall of fame. We need to see them. But like it says right after that, right after Hebrews 11, all these witnesses of great faith, including Mary, they're all there meant to spur us on to run and to finish our own race of faith. As it says right after, well-known Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. We're in a long race, a difficult race. But as he says in verse 3, don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Don't shrink back. Don't slow down. But rather just press on with endurance. And you do that by faith, great faith, which you gain as you fix your eyes on this Jesus. He started your faith. He's sure to finish it. But you must cling to him. Cling to this Savior this morning, Christmas morning, every day. Fix your eyes on this Prince of Peace. He came to bring us peace. We will see that reward as we cling to him and endure. Let's go to him in a word of prayer and praise. Father in heaven and Christ Jesus, O Lord, we exalt you this morning as we remember the birth of your son in this world, the gift of salvation through this Savior, virgin born. We exalt you. We praise you of what his coming meant. It meant the end of the reign of sin and death in our lives. It meant the coming of new life, coming of a kingdom, coming of righteousness, and we long for that. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We're still waiting in hope for the, the, f- the finish line of our race of faith and our salvation. We need for that endurance. Your word is given to us that we might learn from many examples, be encouraged in our own faith. We see that this morning from Mary Mother of our Lord, whom we can say, blessed is she among women. Blessed is she because she believed what was spoken to her of the Lord. May we now be be challenged to imitate her faith. We too might take your word, your gospel, your many promises and believe. Submit ourselves to your will and live accordingly. Knowing your, your ways are better. You've given us all that we need, every good promise for life, for godliness, for endurance. Help us not to shrink back. Help us not to turn back in fear, worry, doubt, but to believe. Build our faith, grow us, and may we exalt you as we run our race. It is in Christ's great name we pray this morning. Amen.